pausing and remembering the life, the passing of the monarch, um, Queen Elizabeth in uh, the UK. So just naming those aspects of the particular context that are sort of in the air as we come together. And for each of us, of course, so much else is in the air. It's sort of remarkable to me sometimes how radically very different our lives are. Um, and uh, there's a certain poignancy uh, for me when I think of the radical diversity of experiences that are everywhere present when any two people come together. Actually, I think even within ourselves, we've got all the sources and potential of all kinds of conflict if we rightly just pause with ourselves and think about the different values we have, the experiences that we have, the commitments that sometimes compete and conflict. And so when, when, when we come together like this, uh, it is not lost on me the underlying generosity of spirit to be willing to make an effort to pause together, commune together and experience a community of learning and practicing Sangha. So I, I bow to, to that within each of you that has um, answered the call to join together on the theme of really reflecting on the challenges and opportunities, let's say, of socially engaged mindfulness, taking our practices, socially engaged Buddhism, into a world well beset with so much so um, I come to you from as I mentioned before San Francisco I was born in North Carolina many many years ago <laughs> um, I, I like to say I was born in 1967 just to get that out of the way. <laughs> um, I do think it's important to honor and reflect the particular window of time that we've witnessed, the windows of experience that have been a feature of our lives. It matters. These kinds of particular details that on the one hand are so much kind of flotsam and just bits of, of, of matter that's ever-changing. What does it matter where we were born or what year? What does it matter what particular social identity we have been in relationship with, right, been um, formed by, been uh, in some sense 
entrained into in the contexts in which we have lived, right? We all come into this conversation and every conversation that we are ever fortunate to have with another human being from a place of having seen some things in the world. So, um, again, it's with a kind of humility and a kind of awe of what it means to be a human being, to be alive, and to have, I think of it as a kind of everyday courage to, for each of us, embodied as we are, manifestations of the earth that walks, to just show up using the words that we've inherited in the languages that we've been taught which if we all know, even though we use the same words, consider ourselves speaking the same language, we can so often miss each other in trying to communicate. So uh, there's a certain uh, kind of a tenderness, I think, that comes up for me when I think of, you know, what it is to be alive together right now. And this is to say nothing of all of the other contextual factors that are in the room right now beyond our identities but through which our identities are being again manifesting that is to say well everything from the public health crises that are ongoing and proliferating right we thought we only had to deal with coronavirus <laughs> there's monkeypox and there's always been other types of viruses shingles right so we are more as we meet today more aware of our vulnerability in these bodies in relationship to public health threats perhaps than we were five years ago climate distress We are, many of us right now, doing our best against waves of heat, the consequences of perhaps many different things, but I think no doubt, at least in part, the consequences of choices that we as a species have made about how to live in relationship to fossil fuels, in relationship to accumulationist practices in economics. So existentially then there is a lot uh, that's always in the air and one of the reasons that I have found myself comforted by the practices and the teachings of the Buddha is that these practices invite us to deepen our capacity for skillful response to all that arises in a human life. I'm thinking of the teaching story of the Buddha when a disciple of his asked how he crossed the flood. And of course the flood is a metaphor for so many things flood of samsara, the flood of all of these changes, the flood of uh, 
you know, what it's like for us in relationship to greed, hatred, delusion, being buffeted about. How do we cross these floods? By not straining on the one hand and by not stopping on the other. The Buddha reportedly replied, I crossed the flood. By not straining and not stopping. It's a, it suggests a certain kind of equanimity in relationship to the flow of the waters of the flood. And, uh, you know, as a, for those who may be listening and, and may not have the visual support or who may uh, not be, uh, may be visually impaired in some way, I'll just describe I'm a brown-skinned woman, petite, right, cisgender, female. And so I have my own set of experiences um, moving through life in this body that constitute what comes up for me when I think of the flood <laughs> that we're up against. And I think that's true for all of us. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to share a few words drawn not only from the book that I wrote that was published in 2019, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Strengthening Our Communities Through Mindfulness, but also reflections on some of the ways I've been in a conversation over the last year uh, with a, a teacher uh, of early and scholar of early Buddhism and uh, the traditions often associated with the Theravada uh, approach to to Buddhist teachings. Uh, Bhikkhu Nalio who is a friend of mine uh, on the journey with whom I have been um, exploring writing a book on these themes. So, so I'm going to be drawing on, have been drawing on already, some of um, what I have been reflecting on, what you may have read in my prior works, and then just some of what's been coming up as we look at what we're up against right now in this period. I think that um, one of the things that's been clear to me is how vulnerable we all are to fear and to um, distress at uh, some of the, the ways that we react to some of the changes that I alluded to, climate distress, public health distress, demographic change. And again, these, these changes inter are interrelate uh, because we know that climate distress is one of the factors driving demographic change, movement, migration around the planet. climate distress, changes in the technological realm, 
add to that, of course, the public health threats that we've all been experiencing. And it should surprise none of us that there's a heightened level of distress in many of our communities. How many of us have noticed? And so here we are. Seeking ways to be in relationship to the heightened degrees of polarization. Research has confirmed it, that which we already know from our own experience. Uh, in fact, social scientists had begun to see indications that political polarization was increasing in Western countries, and I'm emphasizing Western countries because we are, I am, presently in the United States and many of us together are here. And if not in the United States, um, we're probably, I'm sure, disproportionately from this part of the, what we call the West in the world right now. But political polarization has been on the rise in our country and in uh, the countries we often think of as analogous in terms of underlying democratic and economic commitments. But even before the pandemic, the studies were showing that amongst peer nations, countries like Germany and England and Canada and Italy, the United States was experiencing greater degrees of political polarization, again, pre-pandemic, than these other countries. And we know that we've been experiencing even more of that. In June of 2020, we each experienced as well a version of um, opening up to awareness around um, racialized police violence, the public killing of George Floyd that we witnessed occasioned an opening up for many of us of willingness to turn again toward rather than away from or to, 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 to be in conversations that perhaps we might have chosen not to be a part of before. I'm speaking of what many have called that racial reckoning that I think in some sense is, is part of why I'm here tonight, that at least in the last few years in the United States, many of us have um, had no choice, really, but to become more curious about the ongoing prevalence of race and racism in our time and its implications for all of us. And um, so when we speak about political polarization, I think it behooves us to be able to name that ongoing dynamics of racism um, and the effort to kind of revivify, re reinscribe racial hierarchy in the post-Obama era, right? We got to get real about where the pain is coming from, in other words. And I think we have, um, many of us, 
been a part of efforts to be more aware, to be more real, to understand more of what we're up against, um, what the floods can look like around these social dynamics of, of this time. We've, we've, we've been reading books. We've been gathering to have conversations. But we also know there's been something of a backlash, right, the fervor over critical race theory right, has been kind of um, something that reached a kind of a fever pitch after the, 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 the reckoning began, the 1619 Project, inviting us to really look at the consequences of enslavement. But for me, there's always been this question of, can we look more closely at the legacies of our history and the way in which they reach into the present. And not only as regards um, the black-white experience that the 1619 Project, the George Floyd Reckoning, so often highlighted, but really we're talking about all forms of social oppression, including all of the different various ways that racial identity is a feature in those kinds of oppression. So looking at the history and legacies of Asian American experience, the racism against our Asian American brothers and sisters, particularly being, I think, important for us to attend to as we wear these robes, as we sit in these temples, as we come together, having been blessed with the teachings of the Buddha, having inherited teachings that have been lovingly translated to us, shared with us, maintained over centuries so that we could benefit from them by Asian heritage people. And yet, as we come together in our own communities, we know that again, these histories of who belongs and who doesn't, and the particular forms of racism that have been arrayed against Asian American people in our cultures, in our communities, even within places and spaces which have been open to some forms of Buddhism. In other words, Race has been a feature, not a bug. And racism, the different ways that we have opened some doors and closed others, has created untold suffering in our communities and still does. So how do we... You know, when we think about um, social identity-based harm and engaged Buddhism, obviously race and racism are topics that I hope I can kind of continue to support myself and those with whom I work and serve in becoming more capable of skillfully navigating, right, the ways that race and racism continue to cause unnecessary suffering in our lives. 
but not only race and racism, right? There's so many different ways that we are suffering right now. Inequality, economic inequality has scarcely ever been worse anywhere on the planet than it is in the United States right now. It's severe. Um, we see the consequences of not just inequality, but it's sort of one of the one of the ramifications of this beautiful technological revolution. Without which, I wouldn't be able to be here with you, right? Thank goodness, we are able to meet over Zoom right now. And yet, technology has also really been one of the Let's see, it's created another kind of storm. One of the pandemics, in a way, is this sort of way in which technology is sort of colonized, taking over the space of our attention, our awareness, our hearts, how we see ourselves, how we see the world. Now, research has confirmed that extreme views, right, we, the kind of, Economics of the technological revolution have placed an undue economic value on extreme views, which means that we see much more of those extreme views and are tempted to think that they are much more prevalent than they really are. So there is a lot that flood then is um, intersectional, we might use that word, to describe the way that there's sort of different aspects of the suffering that we meet in the social realm, race, gender, sex orientation, class, disability and ability, immigration status, different ways that our religious expression may make us vulnerable, especially to the degree that we're publicly identified in our religiosity. So there's so much. And um, I want to say that the good news is, and I have to smile about it, um, that there is, for me, in our practices, kind of a fountain of possible renewal in every moment, every moment. This, it, to me, is the great sort of the, the kind of um, blessing beyond words of the Four Noble Truths, of the commitments that we make to reckoning with suffering or ill-being, as Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, often like to translate the word suffering. Right? There is suffering and ill-being in the world. Yes, there is. There is in me sometimes. There is, there are causes of the the suffering and the ill-being that we experience. What are those causes? Again, the short form, greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? The way we are tempted to just seize one version, one story, one 
even experience a microaggression or the lack thereof. We seize what we see. But at the same time, there is an end of suffering. There is an end to ill-being. And this eightfold path, as that end, inviting us to reflect on the views we carry, right view, reflecting on the views, because from that place of how we view the world, how we perceive reality, so much flows from what we can see and what we can't. Are we We know on the one hand that everything is in some state of change. We know this. Everything is changing. And yet we fixate. We fixate on notions of, of our identity, the identities that others hold. And so it is somewhat challenging to move through a world where identities matter and we, you know, don't do ourselves any service by simply, you know, bypassing, like not seeing race or gender or class when people's experiences are being shaped by these things. So the challenge is how do we both see these things and attend to the way they may be causing unnecessary suffering without getting stuck? That's the Buddha's earlier teaching, right? How do we navigate these floods? Can we be present to it without straining, right, to sort of make it go away, make it disappear, minimize it, or make it more than it is in a certain place or time? But at the same time, how can we not stop, fail to see anything further, feel that we already have understood all we need to see or understand? How can we, in other words, continue to navigate more skillfully these waters that to me is the humble mm, commitment that I am trying to make in my life seeking somehow to lean into the wisdom of right view right intention right speech Right speech, so important. We spend so much. How do we minimize the harm caused by the language that we use? The way we speak to each other. The way we speak to ourselves. Right action, livelihood, and effort, of course. So much flows from the actions. Right action to me is something that's so important as a law professor. In fact, I've been drawn and recently invited at my university to take on the role of um, running the Center for Law and Ethics. So I'm sitting with this great, it's a kind of a, you know, on the one hand, it's just one university 
in the United States at this time. I'll do what I can if I take on this role, but to focus on ethics at this time. Right and wrong in relationship to the choices that we make and the values that we say we hold. How do we hold ourselves accountable to acting in ways that make manifest what we intend, what we vow, what we believe, what we're committed to? And what does that look like in relationship to social identity-based harm? What are the actions that we should be taking or could be taking to minimize harm? And how do we respond to the call for us to act to minimize racial and other social harm? It's not easy. There's a lot of emotional reactivity that comes up. This is what the you know, in one sense, this is what the fight against so-called critical race theory is about. It's reactivity to the call to attend to our history and to think well together about the modern day implications. Many of us in our communities don't particularly see the value of looking at history. And again, the question for me through the Buddhist lens is how do we attend to history without getting stuck? Not that we don't attend to history. Because, you know, as Faulkner and other writers more skillful of tongue and language than I have suggested, the past actually isn't really past to the degree that we have been raised, educated by right, notions from the past formed by disciplines that have been shaped by our histories, our political institutions, etc. The past is not even past, really. So how do we relate to these questions about the legacies of the past and how they show up and what harm they might be doing? Many of us are just, I mean, again, our culture trains us to be forward-thinking, Maybe the present, but not the past. Let's sort of forget the past. That's a feature of our culture. So it's predictably challenging, I think, for us to be invited as we have been over the last period of our lives, socially and culturally, to think about the legacies of the histories and the impacts today. But right action, right livelihood, right effort, Right, mindfulness and concentration, these path factors that the Buddha suggested actually might help us. To me, the question is, how do each of those aspects of our work support us in whatever we might do from where we are to minimize the unnecessary suffering caused by the way we've organized our social and that is to say our economic, our political, our religious, our practice communities. How can we minimize the suffering caused by the, you know, the kind of habits, patterns, conditionings of our sociocultural context? We don't want people to suffer unnecessarily when they come to our centers of practice to feel that they don't belong 
do we? We don't want to preside over schools, places of training, which are um, unnecessarily carrying forth notions of what, what voices matter and what voices and what histories matter and which don't. We want to be, at least be open to those who come in and say, I, I don't feel seen here, or I think we need to attend to this particular way that might not be as inclusive as we might like. Doing all of that kind of ongoing change work is not easy. We feel ashamed, we feel criticized, we feel exhausted, we feel unseen. And yet, uh, in my view, and it is just my humble view, the, life, the lives that we're given, the gift of being alive together, when we recognize that it is always already embedded in interrelationship with each other, there really is no such thing as a kind of an individual life. We know this. The Buddhist teachings on interdependent arising teach us this, but quantum physics teaches us this. We know that we are radically interdependent, interconnected, always, all right, already. And so from that place of awareness of radical interdependence, it seems to me we have some responsibility to be attentive to how we are and how the way we are impacts each other and causes unnecessary suffering. What's what some of us sometimes call surplus suffering. Totally unnecessary. If we are willing to simply create space for change, we can minimize this kind of suffering. But we have to be willing to attend to what gets in the way, how we get stuck how we are tempted to stop or strain even to try to do more than we're ready to do. So I want to um, bring these remarks to a close um, because uh, of course we could say more, but I'm curious what's coming up for you. Where do you see the challenges and opportunities from right here, right now, September 12th, 2022? to lean more into our practices and to be the change, right, that we wish to see in the world, to enact a way of being that, that really carries the felt sense of justice. That is, a, I'm just going to use the L word, that is about the loving quality in our hearts and that we, that which we call metta, right? That open friendliness, that spirit. How can we make that a feature of how we are? Even in the face of being reminded that we've got work to do. That's the question. That's the question. And so um, thank you all for your willingness to invite this in a certain sense, the stranger into your midst. You, you all know I was, many of you know, I was born in a Christian home. <laughs> so um, some of the inspiration actually is inevitably tied to 
the, some of the teaching stories that I draw from from those early days, listening to my grandmother, Nanny Suggs, who was called to the ministry, speak about um, the, the love that Jesus Christ brought forth. So for me, uh, being committed to Buddhist teachings is, is in no way meant to sort of be a barrier to me leaning into the wisdom teachers who join, I think, with the Buddha in shining a light on ways to make the most of the gift of being alive together, to bring forth that power that I think is the only power really that we have to make a difference together, and it is love. How do we bring that power of love, frankly, right to the fore? Because it's from when we're acting from that place of love, then the joy comes automatically. I haven't spoken a lot about that, but you all can feel it, I hope. I mean, I'm here for the joy as much as anything else. The joy of being alive together in ways that manifest love and the courage to keep trying to open up space for all of us because we all already belong or else we wouldn't be here. Life would not have called us forth. So I just want to thank you all for for sharing and listening. And I'm curious if there are questions, reflections, thoughts, that are coming up for you in response to those comments. Thank you so much. And um, I have a microphone, which I will pass to who everyone here that's sitting here would like to speak and talk to you. And then people on Zoom can click their, raise their hand, and hopefully we'll see everybody, because right now I don't see everybody. Uh, but we'll, we'll do our best to make sure everyone has a chance to talk to you. Uh, anybody here? Thank you. And may I just ask or say that if there are folks who are on Zoom and if you're willing to share your visuals, I know there are many good reasons why we don't share our visuals and no shame. <laughs> but if you're willing, at least for this part of our convening together, so that we can see your beautiful faces. Thank you. Hello, my dears, who are willing to turn your visuals on so that we can feel each other's presence. Thank you. The gift of our being together is not lost. And the opportunities to connect, even though we are in our far-flung places, are real. Yes, I know, not all of us can turn our visuals on. Thank you for those who have been willing to share your presence in this way. So, Anthony, can you see everybody on Zoom who might be raising their hand? Okay, so uh, I can't, so maybe you could... Um, either call on them yourself or let me know. Okay, thanks. Does someone over here have their hand up? No one just yet on Zoom. Oh, okay, Jim. Good evening, Professor McGee. My name is Jim. Um, I, um, you, you mentioned critical race theory. Mm. And, um, you know, my understanding is uh, this has been raised as kind of a boogeyman of, uh, uh, you know, by various, uh, you know, politicians, basically. Uh, and that actually critical race theory is something that existed in the inner <laughs> quarter of, you know, academia 
but you know, was hardly you know anything that was ever taught in the public schools of the United States. And uh, so this is you know dishonest, you know the way that it's been raised. Mm -hmm. And and one thing that that struck me is 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 even more dishonest than that is is that uh, people say uh, who are who are raising it that um, they don't want the children to feel bad about themselves by uh, by understanding the history of uh, racism in the in the country and how it as you say shaped this country and it, that seems to me to be uh, incredibly dishonest and and really um, denigrating the children that they that they couldn't you know um, <clears throat> You know, handle the truth, uh, and and wouldn't and wouldn't be wouldn't be uh, you know become actually more fully citizens in this country by knowing the truth. Anyway, I'm not don't know if I'm asking a question, but I I I, I do um, want to bring you know this this back up and and uh, maybe see what you. Uh, what your thoughts might be more on it, uh, and and if they have any thoughts about, you know, how we could like sort of really, um, you know, uh, talk back about this this kind of this kind of untruth that's been put out about it. Yes. Wow. Thank you, my dear. Well, there is a lot that I you know, could say, especially as a, you know, with my academic hat on as a person who's not just a, a professor, but a professor of law and um, therefore very familiar with the deep origins of critical race theory that you're mentioning because they actually did arise in law alongside, actually, in the wake of something called, by the way, I'm just, bear with me just for a little bit of teaching around this. <laughs> There's something called critical legal theory that actually was the precursor to critical race theory. How many of you have heard of this thing called critical legal theory more generally? So let me just say just a little bit, tiny bit, about critical legal theory. You know, this was the, the, the sort of brain work of some Northeastern liberal white men uh, who were writing in the 1970s and the 1980s about how legal education and law practice reinforced hierarchies, primarily economic hierarchy. So this thing called critical legal theory first was about trying to raise awareness that our basic systems of law were actually reinforcing the status quo hierarchies, including those that keep capitalism creating certain forms of inequality and oppression. So critical legal theory first started out doing the work that many of us certainly think might be worthwhile if we're turning the aperture, shining a broader light of awareness on the way things are in our time that are causing harm. It started out saying, yeah, there's there's inequality and law is playing a role in supporting it. And so people of color who were entering the profession in some numbers in the wake of Martin Luther King's death, entering law teaching, heard the 
again, predominantly white young men who were writing about critical legal theory and thought, hey, I'm curious to hear more about that. We're talking about how law is reinforcing hierarchy. And yet they found that in those conversations, the role of race was not being really well discussed or thought about because we could see that race was a factor in these reinforcing hierarchies. Similarly, women came forth. Where's the conversation about gender and its effects? And something called critical feminist theory came. So in other words, there's been a lot of critical theories out there that have been coming up as people inside law have decided, let's take a closer look at why we keep being so stuck. And it was from that work that others in academia started to find something of benefit to help us understand why the problems just seem to recur generation after generation. And in particular, um, conversations about race started to um, partake of s some small sliver of what had emerged in law. So, so there is a deep background to all of this, a very selective one, and I would agree a bit of a disingenuous one in terms of how you know, the dominant culture is talking about all of this. We're selectively drawing out one tiny bit of a big project to really deepen our ability to think more genuinely, honestly, productively about how we, why we keep being stuck and creating so much inequality, so much pain, poverty, impoverishment, why it seems to just, you know, no matter what we do, we have this technological revolution and it's, we've got the capacity to build a world that really does work for all of us. And yet we're having radical inequality just going on steroids. Well, again, the critical legal scholars were curious about these things. And it called forth really, again, what, what in law was called critical race theory, which was really trying to understand how race was a part of all of that. So there's a very kind of, um, I think, important conversation that had begun. But you know how our culture does. We hyper-simplify everything. We try to reduce everything to a little sound bite, something that you can, you know, us and them, right? We can sort of create the, the boogeyman of, you know, a caricature of someone who thinks these two th or three things. Reducing these very complex, philosophically challenging questions, but very important ones, to, again, these sort of, you know, line drawing, and teamsmanship. You're on my team or you're on the other team, right? What, what we do with all sorts of things in our society. So um, it's painful to watch that. It, for me, it has been very painful to watch it because I think we, we do, not, just, not only do the children, are, are we disrespecting children's ability to listen and learn when we say, oh, we don't want them to feel bad, <laughs> so we don't want them to learn history this history that's painful. We disrespect all he, all of us when we treat ourselves as incapable of thinking better, um, learning our past and being better in relationship to one another as a result of our knowing more about where we've come from and where we might want to go. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a, does all of us a disservice and it, it just breaks my heart. But I'll tell you what doesn't break my heart 
is being in this conversation, you know, having opportunities like this where we can come together and, you know, have a kind of conversation that is not going to make it to the mass media. It's just, it's not going to sell the kinds of things that people want to sell. But we can at least open up space where some truth, broader types of perspectives and approaches can be known, heard, reflected on, where we can lean into our values. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to get things wrong. We, I may misunderstand some things. Each of us may. But if we can keep creating spaces where we can meet each other with these commitments to listening in a way that we can heal, uh, sharing more about our experiences so that we can see more of what I call the shape of the cloth, right? We just want to hear more history so we can see more of what might, might be, you know, needing to be seen. So I, I, I thank you for raising that, and, and all I can say is, uh, I will say, you know, I'm a sociologist before going to law school. I was in graduate studies in sociology, and, you know, in that discipline, there's something called social dominance theory, which talks about how across our cultures there are tendencies to dominate with, in, in cultures where there's enough wealth that we accumulate you know, resources and we have questions about how to distribute them. So cultures like ours. In such cultures, it's, not, it's, it's a common pattern, whether here or anywhere around the world, whether you've got race that you're dealing with or something else, depending on the culture. But you see the effort to dominate socially disvalued others and to create justifications for it. It's very common. And so um, at the same time, it's very common for there to be an, some countervailing efforts, that there are always people trying to flatten the hierarchies, bring forth the love, create more you know, uh, altruistic ways of being. So this struggle against dominance, is some, we, ha, we have our own version of it here. It's showing up in the critical race theory debates or the political haymaking around that. But it's just one of the examples of what humans do when we are not well-guided, not well-grounded in our values and our commitments to beginning again with love. So there's a way in which I look at all of this, and it, it sort of makes me sad. But you know, again, from this longer view, broader view, you you understand it as attachment, uh, confusion, um, aversion. It's just the same old stuff, showing up in a different way. So thank you all for being willing to say, well, let's just stay with it. Let's try to not get stuck. Let's try to love. Let's try to laugh together in the time that we have. Thank you all. Oh, thank you. Just a, just a quick follow-up. Um, thank you for mentioning aversion because it just seems to me that um, as you were talking, what I was thinking was there are people that want to have the conversation and there are people that don't want to have the conversation. It's like they're all at the Thanksgiving table and somebody brings up, politics or religion and the, and somebody brings up race these are the things that are, you know aren't going to be discussed and so then there's you know there's i think we're just working on creating a 
you know, a table where, you know, these things are, they can be discussed, of course, without passion, you know, you know, you know, without, without, you know, uh, you know, getting, getting, uh, you know, angry and so forth. And uh, thank you very much. I'll pass the mic now. Thank you. Or we might also say, as we're passing the mic, can be discussed in ways that, again, even if there is sometimes anger or passion, we don't get stuck. <laughs> that was the teaching. Not that we don't feel or we don't, you know, sometimes feel the whole range of emotions, but that we do not get stuck and that we are committed not to, to, to minimizing harm so that violence is not going to happen just because we have a, a strong view. These are, there are ways that we can navigate these waters more skillfully. That's what I think we're here to do. Thank you. It, it seems like I've heard myself say and other people, white, racialized white people say, I really want to talk about this, but I don't feel like I know enough. And so this, so it's okay to not know enough, but also I think the issue of history is a really important one um, because if we, if we all knew a little more history, it would be a lot easier to say, to express oneself um, without, you know, just by saying this is what I've learned. My dear, thank you for naming this way in which we can feel like we don't know enough. Whew. Couldn't we feel that for the rest of our lives? And don't many of us who feel that, we've lived and we've seen some things, and yet somehow this thought, I don't know enough. In other words, yes, there's a call to learn more and to know history, Maybe be curious, be open to learning. But the idea that we don't know enough, I think that is one of those ways that oppression works. You know, it creates in us a constant sense that we're not good enough, we don't know enough, um, and therefore we don't know what to do. So I think there's a balance, like I think the, the practices, at least in my humble way are inviting us to kind of understand multiplicity of experience. In other words, that yes, we're learning. We're lifelong learners, I hope. And at the same time, we do know some things. We have lived. We have seen. We might, you know, be curious about what words to use, but, but each of us knows a piece of this cloth, has has walked an important part of the road. We've, we've witnessed othering in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in the jokes that were told, in the patterns of who got to go to what school and who didn't. We know some things, and yet we're all learning. We have all been undereducated. Please understand that when 2019... The 1619 Project came forth, and people were invited to learn more about enslavement and the Tulsa race riots and this and that. This was a learning for everybody. African Americans, people of all different stripes were learning. We were all learning. Unless you were a history, a person who taught, 
a lot of racial history. So there were some of us who were like, yes, okay, I've heard this. But a lot of people of all backgrounds have been learning. So can we create more of that sense of we're learning together, right? And that we're all learners on this journey. And it's okay. Yes, it's okay. It's absolutely okay to be a learner. So that, I think, is partly what the Buddhist or the mindful approach to all of this can do that the sort of traditional social justice conversation sometimes doesn't do. That is, create more um, space to, to grow from our mistakes, to, to kind of be right where we are, but be enough in, as we try and grow right from that place. I don't have all the words for this, but I do think there's something about the way these practices help us create space for what is that is is a missing element in some of the ways that we approach social justice. We need more loving space for holding us as we predictably try to do what other generations have not been able to do. That is what I think our practices can help us create. We have a question from uh, Linda in Zoom. Linda. Hi. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I wanted to share um, a resource, if that's okay. I just heard this wonderful person on KQED this morning, Peniel Joseph. He's a historian, and he's just come out with this book called The Third Reconstruct. The Third Reconstruction, um, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. And it was a really great interview. And what struck me about him was his, his way of being, his, his attitude. It was, um, you know, came from a, a warm space, <laughs> you know, rather than a, at least that's what I picked up. So. Um, I already ordered the book, um, and this other practical thing that I had—I don't have any idea what to do with it. But, but I'm really concerned about school boards, and all of us here are much too old to to probably run for a school board. But if you have children or grandchildren, ask them to run for their local school boards because they're being taken over by uh, people who want to take books out of libraries. So, I, you know, that's not a question. It's just a, con, you know, a concern um, that I know nothing. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> but anyway, thanks for coming so much. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that additional resource. Really, really appreciate it. And for amplifying this concern that I'm sure many of us are caring about the school boards, what's happening with our schools. So I'm going to just let those be comments that um, help deepen this conversation. By the way, I wrote an article called The Third Reconstruction, Alternatives to Race, Consciousness, and Color Blindness in Post-Slavery America, like in 2004. <laughs> So I love that we're now talking again about the third reconstruction. Well, I hope he I hope he gives you credit in his acknowledgments. <laughs> we'll see. Who knows? Well, you know, it's one of those things that you know occurs to us eventually. Yeah. Give us, you know, in our in our own way and time. 
So thank you, my dear. The zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I Is see Jonathan. From, uh, Jonathan in Zoom. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for this conversation. It's wonderful. Um, I think I had a comment just because my my spiritual teacher says that compassion is the force that gets people out of the ego. And it's also love and action. That's what she says. And uh, don't, yeah, don't get me started about this subject and go on for about an hour. <laughs> that wouldn't be very zen if I just kept rambling on about something. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I had the fortune of staying in India with her for about five years. And it's Ama the Hugging Saint. You know, she's hugged 38 million people and uh, the lowest of low in society and um, ludicrous kind of um, massive charity projects and things like that, which is really, oh, I should turn on my video. <laughs> I'm just a plain white boy, so you can see that. Uh, where was I going with this? Um, I think there needs to be the seed of compassion inside of people before they can actually start to even branch out to the truth. Because um, I currently am living in Arizona and it's a red state. And honestly, these people are more flamboyant than the gay people. In San Francisco, it's funny because it's just they're so out there with what they believe. But then you're like, it's not factual. And I don't, there's one guy who drives around town here saying that NASA, he has written on the side of his uh, pickup truck, NASA is a hoax. The flat earth theory is real. And he drives around town like that. And I'm like, well, it's unique. I mean, you're out there. You really believe it. Um but I think the basic thing is that unless you have the seed of compassion that's ready to blossom and compassion itself is a form of Dharma because um, my teacher basically explained that Dharma is acting in each situation in a way that represents infinite expansion and compassion itself is expansive. So um, we, if we try to act in every situation in that form of expansion, we can actually shift things and bring some of the light of truth into the world. And um, facts have to kind of follow that because fear is kind of the antithesis of that. It makes that shrink. I spent time, I was kind of abducted by Southern Baptists in high school. And uh, they literally put me on this like IV drip of fear of like hell, you know, and literally I was like shaking after it. I was like shivering. I'd be alone, like shivering where demons are going to eat me and take me to hell and stuff like that. Um, where I'm going with that is that I then recognized later that that was kind of a reflection of the Southern culture in certain aspects of it. And I, I could kind of realize how 400 years of racism was possible when um through taking a look at my experience with them. Because literally, if you do anything to step outside of the social structure, you're going to hell. And it's intense because it's not only your family's going to disown you, 
but God is going to disown you and throw you in a very dark place. And it's it's gnarly because then you see the way they treat gay people and literally the entire family will disown them just for being gay, you know, and where am I going with this? It's There's a lot of social structures of fear that have been built up that need to be dissolved through compassion. And I suppose the more we bring compassion into every moment, uh, the more that we can express that kind of uh, truth. But the seed of that needs to be there. Otherwise, I don't know if the you could throw facts and truth at people all you want, but if that seed of compassion isn't there, I don't think it's going to stick. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm just rambling at this point. <laughs> it's a good kind of ramble. It's my kind of ramble. <laughs> and I did, I did practice Zen intensely for a few years. And to be honest, I got really traumatized by Zen. And then I was like, oh, Zen does have a little bit of baggage from Japanese culture, all the violence and sword chopping and stuff like that. Hope I'm not pushing people's buttons with that. <laughs> but then um, also there was a, I've spent a lot of time with enlightened people from both, you know, the Christian and Hindu tradition. And I feel like Zen needs to embrace that too, what their experience is. Um, and where am I going with that? I don't know. I'll just stop now. <laughs> and I'll turn off my video. I'm probably scaring people. Thank you very much. Thank you. These reflections. I, just to amplify the compassion part, uh, because otherwise, I want to see if there's other voices you'd like to share. Um, well, I had a reader who kind of went uh, through the Kindle app and and because it was reading my book and said, "Wow, she seems to use the word compassion a lot." I'm just curious if I do a search, how many times? And it was slightly embarrassing to learn that um, she found that I used the word compassion more than 700 times in a 300 and some page <laughs> book. So it's more than once a page, multiple times a page. Yes. That's great. So compassion, I completely agree. It's, uh, I think, you know, the Buddha's teachings, for one, loving kindness um, as a support for what John Kabat-Zinn called people stress, but just what we're talking about, the difficulty of being together in light of all of these flamboyant ways of like demonstrating that we actually are afraid of each other. How do we cultivate some capacity for greater empathy and compassion Again, there are these wisdom teachings about how to do that. And again, it's not only the Buddhist teachings. I, I, I understand that there are many different wisdom traditions that can support us in this, but I 100% agree. And my work really has been about amplifying the pathways and doorways into compassion and, and loving ways of being with each other. Because without it, I, that is the power. That's the hidden power, I think, that we're seeking. To make manifest. Is there another reflection or question? Yeah, are there any questions here? Oh, we have a question. This is kind of in the way of an observation where what brought up when you were talking about all the causes and conditions that condition all of us. I think one thing, and we've also been talking a lot about history, 
And this is actually a controversial subject too, but one thing I notice, I like read a lot of history, and one, one thing I notice is that um, people think that we stand astride the entire universe and look back and we can judge every single person without an appreciation of all the causes and conditions that went into all those who came before us. And we can have a little compassion for them. We can stand in judgment of them. But I think that's that's one of the things that gets really used as a weapon in our society and a polarization thing is to is to just uh, think we everyone before us thought they stood astride history too and was able to to see it, you know. So we, we you know, like compassion, a little bit of humbleness, a little bit I don't know, and being informed as well. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I do think there is a great fear of judgment and being judged. Again, you know, our culture trains us in certain habits, patterns, and one of those is a kind of great aversion to being, you know, criticized, being judged. Um, it's not just our culture. It's social and neurobiology tells us the importance of feeling like you belong. And so back to the prior comment that Jonathan was making about, at least this is what I was taking away from it, and a reminder of the sort of um, negative power of desiring to be in a place of belonging and connectedness with other people. So, the, you know, there's some positive value, obviously, of being in a place of being connected. A lot of research shows that if we're not in that place, we can fall victim of drug addiction and all kinds of things can flow from feeling like you're not connected. But there is this shadow side of being connected, which is we, we, we will want to toe the line of whatever everybody else around us is doing so that we feel like we're safe in that place. So we all, there are many, and this is to say, there are many inputs to the fear of being judged that we carry. But certainly to the degree we're suggesting that we might have a little bit more humility around the, temp the tendency to judge that can assist us in, on this journey. But also, if we can become more aware of the way we react to judgment and like recognize that um, none of us is perfect, we're all trying to be better, you know, we are all, at least not all of us are actually really trying, but we can bring that value of trying to be the best versions of the people that we are, you know, fortunate to to be on this planet. So to have that sense of gratitude that we have inherited so much that if only we could do our part to minimize harm as a way of showing how grateful we are for the gift of life. Then then you know the critical perspectives that people have don't don't chafe so much cuz it's like we're all learning anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think there's both. A, 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 to me, I hear an invitation to kind of be more wise in terms of the temptation to judge and evaluate. But I know research is showing that one of the reasons why we don't make efforts to enact more justice is the allergy we have to being judged and criticized and the way we tend to defend 
you know, no, I'm beyond reproach. I'm a person of my time and space. I don't need to be critically evaluated. So there's a lot of work that I think um, might be done to help us be more at ease with those dynamics, not get stuck. Whatever we're faced with, we might be faced with some judgment. We might be faced with the call to not judge as much. Equanimity. That's what these practices are seeking to help build in us. Thank you so much. Um, anybody else? Uh, or do you see anyone on Zoom, Anthony? <laughs> no? Okay. Anyone here? Um, well, we're coming to the close of our time together. Um, it's really been an honor to have you open your heart and your mind and share so much of your perspectives and and, and your passion for <laughs> for a way of being where we're underneath all grounded and in our interconnectedness and love. Um, 